Peace, everyone. Welcome to our Bible study. This is the first one we're doing, and hopefully we'll make this a regular thing. But I really wanted to start us off with the book of James. The book of James is one of my favorite books. And my hope is that each week we're going to go through a chapter. Or maybe for some books of the Bible, we'll go through a couple of chapters. Because if we ever get to Psalms, you know, I ain't going to spend half a year on the Psalms. <laughs> I mean, we could, but, you know, we could also chop it up in another way. But uh, Chris Burton here, Baddest Chaplain, uh, really excited to be with you all um, in, in chatting. And I want you all to send in your questions each week. I'm starting this one out pre-recorded, but we're going to get to, to live um, eventually. Just want to test this out. This is really a organic thing. But uh, first things first, let's open up with a word of prayer. Uh, God, I just want to thank you so much. I want to thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much for your presence. It's amazing how even though this is a recorded thing, I know that you're going to impact someone in their day-to-day life. This is going to touch people in a way that allows them to live their lives that glorifies you. I thank you in advance for that. I thank you for your wisdom, your knowledge, your understanding, and your peace. I ask for everyone who's listening to this, everyone who's watching this, to feel your peace and to know you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm really, really excited to talk about the book of James. I think it's a very, very impactful book. I think for people who often have the question of what's the Bible have to do with anything, I think this is one of those books where you can make it really clear. And I hope over the next few weeks we're making it really clear on how impactful and how relevant the book of James is for our regular lives. I think about uh, the book of James pointing to one truth that we're on a journey of maturity, that following Jesus isn't some sort of like set it and forget it. You do one thing and you're good. You, you're going to heaven and, and that's it. Like, you know, you, that's all you're just waiting to die so you can go to heaven. This shows us that clearly it's about maturing, that the things you may have wanted to do three months ago, that because you continue to walk with God, you continue to pray, you continue to spend time with God, that even those desires that felt natural to you or just normal or just a part of your regular life start to fade away. That, you know, your instinct to want to cuss somebody out in traffic or, or yell at somebody at your job, whatever the, the thing is that feels like, well, that's just how I am. Over time, maturing in Christ, the taste of it just goes away. You may have one moment where you're about to snap at somebody and you're like, I don't have to react this way. So what, what causes that? What allows us to mature? I think the book of James helps us to really wrestle with that. I really like how Eugene Peterson, and for those of you who who, uh, haven't read the Message Bible, the Message Translation, it's really beautiful. I've started using it a couple of weeks ago, even though it's been around for a long time. I want to say something close to like 15 years. I forget the exact date, but it's such a beautiful translation. Eugene Peterson, on top of being like a brilliant scholar, a wonderful pastor, is also a poet. And so you get to see the rich poetry with how he's doing a very strong, solid translation, but it's beautiful poetry in that. And I think anytime you get a chance to really mix poetry in with prose or just really take a poetic license, so to speak, you're doing beautiful work. So Eugene Peterson, he, he in the copy of the Message Bible, he introduces like a lot of copies and translations of the Bible do. He, he introduces the different uh, books. And so 
part of what he says for the book of James that I really, really liked um, are, are these two questions. He says, what good is a truth if we don't know how to live it? Let's park the bus there. What good is a truth if we don't know how to live it? Right? You and I can say, this is the truth. I'm telling you the truth. But what do we do with that truth if it doesn't apply to your life? Like, that's a really mind-blowing thing. Because obviously, if something's true, it should apply to your life. Like, none of us should be wanting to live a lie. None of us should be wanting to live in a way that just maintains mythology. That's not something we should want to do. We should be pursuing the truth. And once we have the truth, we should put the truth on like it's clothes. We should walk in the truth. We should live in the truth. We should be comfortable with the truth. These are all things that we should have, but we know in our society, in our own personal lives, this isn't always the case. But Eugene Peterson asked this question, what good is a truth if we don't know how to live it? Also, he asks, what good is an intention if we can't sustain it? Now, I've preached a, a, a few times now in talking about intentions and talking about what it means to say, I didn't mean to do that. Like, what's the point of saying that if the end result is still you caused injury? And the end result is still offense, harm. Hearing that you didn't mean to do it is little comfort. Maybe you could make it worse by saying, I intended to do that, right? That would make things worse, no doubt about it. But it certainly doesn't make things better to just simply say, I didn't mean to do that. So what good is an intention if we can't sustain it? If I say to you, I love you, I care about you, and I intend to take care of you, if I'm not sustaining that, there's going to be some sort of confusion because you told me you're going to say you love me. You told me you're going to say you want to take care of me, but it's not lining up. So ultimately, we have to find a way to live what we rap about. We have to find a way to make sure that what we're saying lines up with how we're living. And this is a part of that journey of maturity, a part of that consistency. I've been thinking a lot about, and I actually started reading this book uh, called Atomic Habits, and I really enjoyed the book. I'm not quite done with it yet. Um, so if you've read it, give me, a, give me a comment and let me know what you think of that book. Um, but I, I really am just become almost obsessed, <laughs> I think obsessed is the healthy word in this case, with paying attention to how the little details of our lives become our whole life. Because I don't want to say things that I'm not, right? Like I don't think at this stage and as infrequently I play, I'm no longer comfortable calling myself a basketball player. That was once true, right? I wasn't Super good. <laughs> I want to put that, that, that disclaimer out there. But I played every day. There was a point in my life where I played basketball every single day, multiple times a day, right? Would just be out there before school, lunchtime, after school, at practice, I'm hooping, right? That was a sincere part of my life at one point in time. To say that now, when... I may get to play basketball once every three months or I'm just like shooting around while my kids are at, you know, soccer practice or something. I, I don't think it's right for me to call myself a basketball player anymore. But I also think about the other things 
that I still call myself. I have to sort of investigate. All right, so for example, I like to think of myself as a writer. But what's the point of saying I'm a writer if I'm not writing on some regular rhythm, right? Let's go even further. I'd like to call myself a kind person. I'd like to call myself a patient person. I'd like to call myself a loving person. So now, in large part because of Atomic Habits, but just on my own journey, I'm thinking about what does it mean for me to believe these things about myself? That must mean I have to put those things into practice. There's no point in me saying I'm a loving person if I'm not putting that into practice. There's no point in me saying that I'm a kind person if I'm not putting that into practice. Oof, hardest one probably, I think. It's very little point in calling myself a patient person if I'm not putting that into practice. How do I demonstrate patience on a regular basis? How do I demonstrate kindness on a regular basis? How do I make being a loving person a part of my signature? How is love my signature? That must mean every encounter I have with people is an opportunity for a rep. Right? So that's gym term for those of y'all who ain't really trying to lift weights or get on the Peloton or nothing like that. But you putting reps in, that means you like, you know, lifting that dumbbell a few times. You get your reps, repetitions. All right, you with me? All right, so, so thinking about how are we using every encounter as a potential rep to demonstrate that love, demonstrate that kindness, demonstrate that patience, showing the evidence of maturity, that you're going from what you were when you first encountered Christ and you're like, oh, my life is different now until now, right? Because no matter what the time is, it could be last week, last Sunday, it could be yesterday, it could be earlier today, it could be years ago. We've got to desire growth. That declaring that Jesus is your Lord and your Savior is the starting place. It's not the ending place. It's the foundation, right? Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is in charge of my life. Hitting the microphone. Sorry about that. It's the first episode. <laughs> but Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is in charge of my life. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus saved me from what? The way I used to be, presumably. Right? It can't just be saving me from hell. Right? If we're having this understanding of hell as like some like ultimate final destination, right? If that's all Jesus is, just save me from that bad thing. What about the life you're living? What impact is Jesus going to make on how you live your life right now? What's the evidence of it? What's the proof? And I think about this because even folks who have very little to do with God, folks who have very little desire to, you know, live their lives dedicated to God are looking for proof. 
They're like, oh, you 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 a Christian now? Oh, you love God? What's the difference? If you do something that's not in line of their idea, and I'm not just talking about the idea like as like the the negative ideas of what it means to be a Christian, right? Because unfortunately, there's a lot of good evidence for a Christian meaning hip- hypocrite. There's <laughs> a ton of like we don't need more evidence if you're trying to build that case. But if you're trying to build the case that there's more to that, that that's just a case of bad marketing, right? They're trying to build the case that, you know, being a Christian means so much more than just being shysty, right? If you're trying to build that case, you got to be consistent. You got to live what you rap about. So really understanding, and I think James in this first chapter is articulating this sense of us as followers of Christ being on a journey of maturity. Now, I want to offer that a big part of that maturity is really connected to what we think of God. I often wonder about people's understanding of who God is, right? Now, I want you to take this. You can pause right here and, and, and journal if you need to. But I really want you to think about what is your understanding of God? Like when you imagine God, I'm not saying like, oh, you imagine God is having like, you know, old, old man with long hair. I, I don't care about that. But really like the character of God, right? I want you to talk to me about how do you imagine God? Is the God that you imagine loving? Is the God that you imagine kind, patient? How has God revealed God's self to you? Have you seen the loving nature of God? Have you experienced that? Has God been introduced to you as like an angry God or mean or distant or just unaffected by what happens to you? All of these are different presentations of God that exist within our everyday lives and in pop culture and the general understanding of the world, the zeitgeist, if you will. All of these representations of God exist out there, but I'm really convinced that our own maturing in our walk with God is connected to how we understand God to be. So, for example, when you read James 1, I also want you to take time and go back and look at Numbers 23, particularly this interaction between Balaam and, 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 and Balak. And what's so interesting about it is, especially if you grew up in like a, a church where they got like different churchisms, you may have heard somebody say, God is not a man that he should lie, right? People have sang that things in like a Hezekiah Walker song or something like that. That's connected to Numbers 23. So this understanding of God not being a liar is really connected to not only Numbers 23, but particularly you can see it there, right? This understanding of God being the truth, God not being a liar. So if God is not a liar, and we're trying to be like God, what does that mean about us and the way we need to live? In my estimation, it means consistency. It means showing up, being dependable, reliable, a constant presence, right? Like one of my favorite reggae songs and a song that really has helped shape my own theology, my own imaging of God, is this understanding of God 
as a big ship. Big ship sailing on the ocean. We no need no commotion. Freddie McGregor. You could Shazam it, Spotify it after this too. Just thinking about what it means for God to be this constant presence. Like what a good parent should be. You know? Present. If a, if a parent has the ability to be be present, that's a giant, like you're winning if you're doing that. You know, if any new parents are listening, just be there. <laughs> you know what I mean? It doesn't matter if you're interested in it or not. Just be there because that's that just means the world to your kid, right? So what does it mean to be consistent? What does it mean to be present? James 1 starts off, you know, with this uh, introduction where James describes James's self as a bond servant of Jesus. In some translations, it just says servant. Some translations, it may even say slave. And I understand, like, you see that language, and, you know, a lot of us now, because we're, 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 we're trying to be more conscious, right? I'm not going to use woke in the wrong way that people have sort of gentrified and hijacked. I'm not doing that. But I'm saying that, like, the ways in which a lot of us are aspiring to be more conscious, more aware, hearing that, you know, he wants to describe himself as a slave of Jesus or a bond servant of Jesus could seem very weird. But I want us to think once again about this notion of what it means, especially for those of us who grew up in church culture and, and understand a lot of churchisms and church language to just be sort of in the air, but not necessarily understand what we're saying, right? That if we're saying that Jesus is our Lord, what does this mean for real? Like, it's not just an expression, right? Like, it has to have meaning beyond just being some sort of churchy phrase. I want to offer to you that it means that you're having Jesus as the captain of your ship. That Jesus is at the table making your decisions. And what's so interesting about this and how it changes your life, how it affects your walk, is that it leaves very little room for ambition because we're listening to the spirit. And what's so funny about that is you could take that and say, well, I'm not going to do anything of import because I'm just going to follow Jesus. So you've seen examples of folks throughout the church for the past thousand, 2000 years. Take that to mean I'm going to have a complete vow of poverty. I'm going to live with nothing. St. Francis of Assisi legendarily would trade clothes with whoever he encountered based on if the person he encountered had worse clothes than him. So he sees, you know, your shirt, he's like, oh, that shirt's got a giant hole in it or, you know, a stain on it. Let's switch. Jersey swap. And he would just take the person's uh, jacked up clothes. But something I've started to really wrestle with initially and just pay attention to is that listening to the spirit while it may quiet your own ambition there is still elevation with listening to the spirit so it's not as if 
God's assignments aren't in wealthy places or God's assignments aren't in places of abundance or God's assignments only require you to have nothing to work with. You're not resourced. That's not the totality. Undoubtedly, there are people whose assignment calls them to be in places where there is little material resource. Undoubtedly, no doubt about it. But they do not have the monopoly on all of the assignments that God elevates. And frankly, with the aforementioned folks who are dealing with very little resources, God is elevating in a way that seems very peculiar for our capitalist Western eyes, right? So it's about understanding that God's elevation is the best elevation. And while your ambition might have had you over here, God's going to take you over there. And you want to be where God put you. You really want to be where God put you. Which now lends itself to the next two verses. Where in in the NKJV, (laughs) it says, uh, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. In the NRSV, it says, My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So thinking about this, why is patience important? Sounds like going through these trials in James's lens is not supposed to be something that makes you just sit there and say, ain't nothing going good. It sounds like the trials are the training ground. I think about it almost like I used to watch X-Men back in the 90s. And when they were at the X-Mansion, like Professor uh, Xavier, the X-Men always were like sparring with the fake Sentinels. They had the training room. And you would think their lives are so dangerous that they wouldn't want to be in a room where they had to sort of synthesize danger, right? Even though it's a training room, it could get real in there. You could hurt yourself in there. But they always were training, always getting themselves better. So thinking about us walking with God, being on this journey of maturity, we need training spaces too. So that when we are tried, it's not just for us to feel like the world is crushing us, but it's for our faith to mature into patience or endurance. It gives us strength and and, and durability. And frankly, I think that it's a part of the necessity of empathy. Because as much as people want to avoid suffering altogether, right? Imagine if none of us who follow Jesus suffered. Imagine if following Jesus sort of created this blanket around you where you just couldn't suffer at all. Now, some of us may say that sounds really great. But I want us to think about what it means for when we encounter people who are suffering. 
Because in this scenario, this hypothetical doesn't mean suffering is gone from the world, right? This isn't the end of Revelation where, you know, Jesus, or Jesus is wiping every tear from every eye. That's not what this is in this hypothetical. This hypothetical, those who are following Christ aren't suffering, but everyone else is suffering. So that means when you talk to your neighbor, your family member, anyone you encounter who is suffering, maybe at best you can have sympathy for them. Because you're not suffering. So maybe at best you would say, I'm sorry for your loss. Oh, that's, that sounds tough. At best. But what has it looked like for your walk? I want you to pause this here. You could journal it. What has it looked like for your walk? The fact that you have suffered when you deal with people who are suffering. I'll tell you that for my walk, at least, it's matured my responses so that I'm no longer just saying, oh, I'm so sorry for you. But because of the suffering I've gone through, I'm able to say, I know what that's like. Now, I can't say that about every single circumstance I encounter. No doubt about it, right? Like, I've never been in the pains of childbirth. So I can't say, oh, I know how that feels, right? And you don't want to minimize a person's pain by just saying, oh, I know what that's like. It, like, you're, like uh, in a way that can be heard, like, you're fine. But it's really about being in the space with a person. It's really about making sure that when people suffer, when they grieve, when they're going through it, that none of us have to do this alone. Right? None of us have to do this alone. Probably the only thing Liverpool ever got right was saying, you never walk alone. Hope I didn't lose some of y'all with that, but Google it on your own if you don't know what I'm talking about. But saying that you don't have to do this by yourself, that you walk with someone, that allows you to be like God. And the reason that allows you to be like God is because think about one of the names of Jesus, arguably one of my favorite names. I don't know if it is my favorite, but it's, it's, it's up there. Emmanuel, God with us. So if God is the type of God, if God reveals God's self through the character of saying, I want to share proximity with you. I want to walk with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to be with you. What does that mean about the kind of character we're supposed to have? The kind of proximity we're supposed to enjoy with folks? This is, this is what it means to be more like God. How are we going to be more like God if we don't really want to deal with nobody? How are we going to be more like God if we're not really in it? Now, this lends itself to the next verse I want to highlight where it says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. This is verse 5. NRSV says, If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given you. Right? I love this understanding of a generous God. Once again, we're really dealing in this chapter with how do you understand God to be? Because if you understand God to be mean and just waiting for you to make 
the smallest mistake so God could press that sort of bond villain button and just send you to hell forever. If that's the only concept of God you have. James 1 is really pushing against that. James 1 is really interrogating that. Because right here we see understanding of God as the source of abundance. Right? We're understanding God as the source of I'm going to give you all that you need. And matter of fact, more than that, so it spills into in case you need some, someone else around you needs something too. Like I see God's character in the way my grandmother cooked, the way my mother cooks, right? It's not, oh, there's four of us, so I'm going to put four items out, right? Like I don't eat meat anymore, but I'm just for the sake of argument. There's four of us here, so I'm going to make four hamburgers, right? I'm going to make four four pieces of chicken or eight pieces of chicken. Everyone gets two pieces each. No, it's about preparing enough so that if someone's car was to break down and they pulled up to our house or if a friend stopped by unexpectedly, there'd be something for them to eat too, right? It's funny, I'm saying this and now I'm like, man, people just going to start showing up for food because they know we got a lot of food. I don't know. We'll see, right? Got to provide. But it's really about understanding how do we live in an abundant way, not in an excessive way, not in one that's not a good steward of creation, right? Not in one that's just wasteful. And not in this sort of mean way that says, like, I have it and you don't, right? Like, flossing is not godly. As I'm saying flossing, I'm realizing that a lot of the kids now are going to understand flossing as like an old dance. And that was not what I was referring to. Like, flossing's like a late 90s, early 2000s term for showing off. I don't know what Gen Z and Gen Alpha are saying for flossing now. Feel free to put that in the comments too. Like, what does showing off mean to like, like what, does showing, what is showing off to a Gen Zer? You know, <laughs> like, feel free to share that. But really just understanding that we aren't called to have stuff just for ourselves. And not all of us are going to be called to live lives where we don't have. There certainly can be seasons of not having, right? There certainly can be seasons of, I have just what I need. Thank God I got my daily bread today. There, there are seasons like that. And for some of us, especially because of economic violence, it feels like that's the only season we get. Is somehow, some way, I made it. But as I'm saying that, I think about one of my favorite interview clips with Bob Marley. I don't even know who he was being interviewed by, but someone asked him about how wealthy he was, like his riches. And Bob said, like, he's just chilling there. He says, like, what kind of riches are you talking about? And he eventually talks about having life and life everlasting. Like, those are the riches he had. And it reminds me of Solomon in, in, in First Kings where he's talking. Rather, he has the opportunity to ask for anything from God. And he asks for wisdom. So I want you to think about, and I challenge you to, to think about what this means for our prayer life. That wealth and abundance isn't about just asking God for a dollar to buy the winning lotto ticket. 
And it's certainly not about asking God for a billion dollars with no means of production or financial literacy. It's about asking God for the wisdom to use abundance in a manner that begets abundance. Not lack, not more scarcity, not excess, right? It's not about making people look foolish or making ourselves look foolish. It's not about being selfish. And this is sort of the the difference I'm trying to illustrate for y'all when I talk about excess versus abundance. Abundance spills over. Excess is eating a 20-piece in front of starving people. That's excess. You have more than what you need that's just being wasted. That's excess. Abundance is saying, I have so much. There's no way I can eat all of this. Let's invite folks. Let's, let me take a quick walk around the block and see who's hungry and just bless them. That's abundance. That's what I'm talking about. There's nothing sinful in abundance. Excess, wow, sinful. Because you didn't get all that just for yourself. Why, why would you not want to help somebody? Wisdom is about taking what we need. Wisdom gives us what we need so that we can take the Lord's Prayer seriously. So that we can make it on earth as it is in heaven. We got to take these things drastically seriously. Like when I talk about abolition, and I talk about Jesus as that prime abolitionist, that example of what it means to be an abolitionist, of setting everything right. We have to really understand that when we're praying the Lord's Prayer, Saying like, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? God, your name is great. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? God, we want you to rule over everything. It's not about what I want. It's all about what you've planned. And I trust you. I know you're good. You don't have a plan in one hand and another plan behind your back. No, that's not how you live. It's not how you move. And I want your plan to not just be something that I have to wait for when I die. Then I get to see, oh, look, look at all the cool things you have planned up there. No, on earth as it is in heaven. So all these aspects of understanding who God is has to be lived out here. I can't wait until I'm gone on the other side to start living it out. I can't wait until, you know, some dramatic thing happens and now all of a sudden I want to live it out. I can't wait till the end of my life and because, you know, I have this deep fear of of, of being judged, now I'm going to try to do right. No, no, no. It has to be lived out all throughout as soon as you realize. Right? So don't, Trip off of how you used to be. Now you know. So if now you know, let's do better. Let's move forward with it. I want to quickly uh, talk about a few other things that I really liked in uh, James 1 that that's, I wanted to point out. It's thinking about what it means to doubt. Thinking about how doubt offends God. Because we're either calling God weak we're calling God a liar. When we don't trust God, we're saying either 
you're not capable of fixing it or you never meant to fix it. So what does that mean about the ways in which we view God? It's really what I want us to, to think about and let that marinate. Well, thank you so much for listening to this. My prayer and my hope is to be able to do this uh, every week and then we're going to move on to another book. But please, feel free to, to let me know what's on your mind, what you're thinking about with this. You email us at chris at baddestchaplain.com. I'd love to hear from you. And it's also with Spotify, you're able to leave comments. So go ahead and leave comments if you're listening to it on Spotify. If you're on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and, and give us five stars. If you're on YouTube, you can leave a comment there too. And give us a like and a subscribe. <laughs> Always wanted to say that. But sincerely, thank you so much for watching. Thank you for listening. God bless you and keep you. And until next time, peace.